Thank you, Jathan and the band and Sharon. Grab your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our series that Paul Tomei started in the book of 1 Timothy. And as you're going there, I just want to uh, start off by uh, saying thank you um, to you as a congregation, specifically to the elders and the leaders of this church for allowing me to travel to Uganda with Paul. Um, it was fantastic, and uh, we had an amazing time. Um, it's the first time in 27 years that Heidi and I were apart on Valentine's Day. That was a challenge, and we were a long ways apart, but it was great having Sydney there, and she is a hearty traveler. She humbled me. Uh, she's a go-getter, um, and it was great to see her interact. We have tons of stories, um, of uh, ways that God opened our eyes, and um, again, we, we had an amazing time with Paul, and uh, in the village with the children, we got to do, uh, Sydney got to interact with them, and we were doing a pastor's training, and uh, there's going to be pictures kind of shooting up as I scroll through some of this. Um, this is at the Nile. We were uh, doing a little uh, hike that day before we w did the pastor's training. Um, it was great. Uh, first time not through Spanish, that I taught through an interpreter, and that was a, a really cool experience. Um, that dude right there is a nook. He was my favorite. He wanted me to make a bottle cap disappear every second. <laughs> I did it one time, and then it was nonstop. There was a little hole in the church, and he would sit there. He didn't speak English, but he'd go, psst, 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 come, come now, please. And then his eyes would disappear, and he'd hold up that bottle cap, and uh, it was great. This uh, is a picture. Heidi's or Sydney's with the kids. Um, this picture of the training. Uh, I spent some time talking with this 90-year-old pastor who walked several miles to get to this training, um, and he was so excited to a get the training and and uh, learn, but also get a pair of glasses so he could read his Bible. But uh, I think two things stuck out to me. Um, first, it was for me, inspirational to see Paul Edwards and Andrew Mwange do what they do. You have to understand, I've sat in a seat for 18, 19 years where I've had students I've discipled and mentored, family, parents, people, a lot of you have gone. Um, I was never really able to go because of SMI and other responsibilities here. So to be able to go and then put some faces to the names and connections to all the stories I've heard for years and years and years was amazing. But on top of all that, to be able to put eyes on Paul Edwards interacting, teaching, and training with Andrew, the two of them together, um, it was amazing. It was amazing. We had uh, an absolute fantastic time. So again, thank you so much for uh, creating space for me to be able to do that. Um, we've got uh, some conversations started with Again, many of you have asked about this. Are we going to go? Are we going to continue to go? We are. We're looking at a trip maybe in June or in February. And Paul Edwards is helping me to figure out that because he's the pro at doing that. And so we got to converse a little bit about that. I wanted to show you a picture of the school in this local village. That's the school. And they have a thatch roof on this school. And um, the schoolmaster was telling us that one of the issues that they have is that when it rains and they're getting ready to hit their rainy season, the parents don't oftentimes let the kids go to school. There's about 30 to 45 kids that attend that primary school. 
And we started talking, and we learned that for $2,000, we can build that with brick and a real roof. And so I presented that to um, Joni, and it looks like this is going to be our VBS project this year with the pennies. We're going to try and completely fund and build this school. So that's really exciting. The second thing that stuck out to me, which I want to use as a springboard into scriptures this morning, Paul had warned me about African time. You laugh, those of you who've been, you know. You know, the training will start at 10, but people will show up at 1 because they've got to do stuff. And, and I was ready for that. But what I wasn't ready for was the hurry, the hustle, and bustle is the same there as it is here. I mean, if you're driving down a road in Kampala, it's crazy. I am blown away and incredibly thankful to God that I'm alive. <laughs> Boda bodas, motorcycles everywhere. You're, it's just, you, I couldn't believe it. There was a piano on the back of a motorcycle. <laughs> Five people, including two infants. Now, I've been told these things, but when you see it, it's a little different. Everybody there is on the go, just like here. The difference is we keep time, and we're disgruntled when time isn't kept. They're not. They're not. There's a joy that is just infectious. It gets into your blood there. But I couldn't believe it's this universal truth that no matter where you are in the world, no matter what culture you come from, there's something in your soul that is never satisfied, that's on the go, that's, that's wanting to be fulfilled. Think about your life. What is the desire of your soul? I mean, what do you want deep down? I'm not talking about new car, new job, new house, new whatever. Something deeper. Think about it. Especially in those times where you are in great need or there's suffering or struggle going on. That you, your soul kicks into high gear from one thing to the next, trying to find satisfaction and joy. There's nothing different here in regards to that than there is there. That stuck out to me. When I think, oh, everybody's just kind of going to not hold the time and kind of show up whenever, my mind had this like, well, it's just kind of leisure. No. No, it's still on the go. Our souls are wired to desire fulfillment and satisfaction. Wouldn't it be great if you could truly find peace, like true peace, where there's completeness and wholeness on the inside to where you don't need anything external? That your soul is satisfied. There's a wholeness, a completeness. There's health, tranquility, total peace is the word I want to use. Matter of fact, there's a word in the scriptures to describe this. It's this rich, deep Hebrew word called shalom. Shalom in scriptures is the word for peace. It's the absence of chaos and specifically the absence of conflict. And it's the presence of something even greater. As a matter of fact, in the scriptures, this word shalom is oftentimes used to describe God himself. The core idea of life is that it's complex. 
It's full of many moving parts. And when these moving parts get out of order, it causes problems where our souls become restless. And the mission of God through Jesus Christ is to restore shalom. Shalom in our relationships. Shalom in our lives. Peace, tranquility, wholeness, where you don't lack anything. It's the way God created everything in the beginning. Our souls desire to go back to that perfect peace. And this is why Jesus came. This is the central principle to what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to pay the penalty for the chaos, the sin that has destroyed peace, and that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can have and find peace in God. This is why we open up his word every Sunday to find God's will, his direction, his instruction on how we return to his design. This is why the word of God is so important that it has authority in our lives this is why Paul Tome said in the first day of the series that he and I are going to do the best we can to open up his word and to preach God's word. That there's one meaning, and sometimes it's hard to get to that meaning. There's not multiple meanings to the word of God. There's multiple applications, but there's one intended meaning. God's direction for us to be restored back to him is found in these scriptures and the job of the pastor is to preach the word. It's a huge challenge. We're trying not to preach our opinion or philosophy. We're trying not to give in to political correctness, and sometimes that's hard. The gospel is, in many ways, like the apostle Paul said, foolishness. It's contrary And so as you grab your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're pursuing God's will in our lives through his word. Let the scriptures this morning seep into your heart and soul and change you from the inside out so that you can walk God's will and find total peace. 1 Timothy is Paul, as you know, quick review, writing to Timothy, a young pastor, on how he's supposed to lead the church in Ephesus. He's a young pastor, as you already know, so he's leading from the middle of the pack. And Paul is trying to encourage him and give him direction on how he's supposed to lead the family of God. In chapter 4, Paul encourages and exhorts Timothy to be an example in how he lives by speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. This is imperative as we move into chapter 5. That Timothy needs to be above reproach so that he can step into the middle of the congregation and lead the family of God. And Paul explains to Timothy how to pursue godliness in his relationships with the congregation. 
And he does this by introducing a primary or core concept, which I want to give you, and it's the springboard that moves through the rest of five and some of six as he addresses these relationships within the church. It's a principle that Timothy needs to apply to his life in the way that he lives and interacts, and it is not limited to Timothy. You and I need to apply it to each other as the children of God, and the principle is this. How you see people is how you will treat people. And you think about your relationships in this room. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are part of the family of God. How do you see each other? You know, relationships are full of conflict. They can be very, very uh, difficult at times. Whenever people come together in community, as we do in the church, inevitably there's going to be misunderstanding, there's going to be confusion, there's going to be chaos. We know this in our own families. Family and relationship can be hard. But Paul wants Timothy to have a specific way of looking at other people. How you see people is how you will treat people. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, I'm sorry, 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. You see that there's two commands here that he's given them. The first is don't rebuke. The second is encourage. Now, Paul, if you've read any of his other books, he's a rebuker. It looks like he's contradicting himself, but he's not. When you look at the word, this specific word for rebuke is fueled by anger and rage. It's a word of destruction. The other words for rebuke are not that form. It's more of an encouragement rebuke. It's a discipline. The second command is to encourage. The the two pictures I want you to have with these two commands is the sword and the scalpel. A godly pastor is what Paul, Paul is telling Timothy. A godly pastor will use his words not as a sword, but as a scalpel. Both are used to cut. The first one is to kill. The second one is for healing. Timothy is to treat everyone in the family of God like actual family. Essentially, what he's saying is, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Don't rebuke a younger man, but encourage him like you would a brother. Don't rebuke an older woman, but encourage him like you would a mother. Don't rebuke a younger woman, but encourage her as you would a sister. Reminds me of the proverb found in uh, Proverbs twelve eighteen. There's one whose rash words are like swords thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. How you see people is how you treat people. Especially when there's conflict. Oftentimes, I think we miss that principle in the local congregation. Or we get upset about something, or we don't like something specific about somebody else. 
And we begin to pick and knit, and we forget, wait a minute, we're the family of God. We are all children of God. It's okay to disagree. There's going to be conflict, but how you interwork that conflict into the family is imperative, especially when it comes to the gospel transforming a community. We have to treat each other like family. And we have to have a mindset that we're not acting like family, that because we believe in Jesus and because we follow Christ, we are children adopted into the family of God, every single one of us, with our sins, with our mistakes, with our desires, with our dislikes, whatever they are. That we interact as children of God because we are. And then with that as the foundation, Paul jumps into encouraging Timothy how to interact with specific groups in the church. Today we're going to look at widows. Next week, elders. And the following week, slaves. Paul focuses his attention after he sets the foundation. How you see people is how you treat people. Let's talk about widows. In the first century church, there was a problem with widows. You can't read very far in scriptures without seeing references to how widows are supposed to be treated. It's a big issue. Moses, the prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, all four Gospels, the book of Acts. There are 80 direct references to how widows are supposed to be treated. Why? Because God keeps an eye on the widow. He is profoundly concerned with the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. It says he's the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. Matter of fact, Jesus himself makes a reference to his mother who's a widow, to his disciples in John chapter 19, for them to take care of her. And you can't confuse the half-brother of Jesus, and what he says about widows. He doesn't mince words. He says, let's be clear about the nature of real religion. It must be visible. It must be practical. It visits widows and orphans in their trouble, as well as maintains moral purity in the world. And in Acts 6, we see that the early church had to deal with how to provide for widows who were being marginalized or neglected. So Paul's going to instruct Timothy how to treat widows as if they are his mother or his grandmother. I think it's important to note, not (laughs) mother-in-law. If my mother-in-law is watching this on the live stream, love you, (laughs) mother-in-law. But before we jump in, I just want to say verses 3 through 16 seems to be broken into two sections. There can be a little bit of conflict just in reading these two sections. It, it seems that they're divided. Each is governed by its own imperative verb. Three through eight is dealing with widows who are to be honored by the congregation with financial support. This is very specific in the first section, three through eight. 9 through 16 deals primarily with widows who are supposed to be enrolled or put on a list. It doesn't negate the first group 
but it separates them. The first group is marked out by destitution and need. You're going to see this as we read. The second group is marked out by a specific set of qualifications, age, marital faithfulness, faithfulness, and a good reputation. There can be overlap in these two groups. Verse 3, follow along with me. Honor widows who are truly widows. I'm just going to pause real quick. The English word to describe a widow is a woman whose husband has died. And that applies here, but this word for widow has a deeper, richer, more specific meaning. The Greek word is chira, means widow. It includes the English meaning, but it's not limited to it. It's an adjective used as a noun. It means robbed or having suffered loss or completely left alone. Honor a widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. What he's saying is the primary responsibility for providing for widows belongs to the widow's family. That the fabric of the family is crucial to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church family. That if families are broken and fragmented and disconnected, then the church family is going to suffer as well. And that it's pleasing to God that families take care of their direct family members. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. Listen to this. This is amazing. Set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers, day and night. What Paul has said to Timothy is that there is a condition that defines true widows. They're left all alone. They're desolate, desolate, whatever that word is. They're, they're grieving. They're by themselves. They've got no support. They're suffering. And then he marks out their conduct. Quit laughing at me, Jenna. He marks out their conduct as truly widows. That there's a condition, and based on that condition, they have a way that they conduct themselves in that suffering that is very godly. Three specific things. In the midst of her suffering and her loneliness, she is putting her hope in God. She appeals for help, and she prays day and night, and she perseveres. She's a believer, and her pursuit of God proves it in the midst of her pain and suffering. Verse 6, but she who is self-indulgent, this is classic Apostle Paul teaching here. She who is self-indulgent is dead even though she lives. Timothy, command these things well so that they may be without reproach. Paul doesn't miss a beat to highlight the conduct and the character of a widow who's suffering and loves the Lord with those who are struggling and aren't. They're lost in their hope and their focus is on themselves. Command them, encourage them so that they can know shalom, it only comes from God. 
says, command this to the congregation. And then there's a key verse in this section where there's a warning about a behavior that's worse than pagans. This behavior does not bring honor to the gospel and it's contrary to it. As a matter of fact, it explicitly denies the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When family structures fail, church influence fails. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Think about that. This is directly talking to immediate families being broken. That's a reality. I think that applies to every one of us in some way, shape, or form. But again, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of God through Jesus, is meant to restore that in our immediate families and is supposed to transform our church family. And then we shift to verses 19 through 16 where there's additional instruction about how to care for the needy widow that's listed in 3 through 8. But it seems, for most commentaries, unlikely that the Apostle Paul is specifically putting strict qualifications or restrictions on the eligibility for charity. Instead, the word enrolled on a list in general, from Acts and throughout Scripture, is used to qualify women or men for ministry in the church. It doesn't eliminate the first section, but it is more specific in regards to being enrolled. It says this, let a widow be enrolled if she has not less if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been a wife of one husband, having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, and cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. There's three specific qualifications for a widow that's going to be enrolled on this list. Not less than 60, Wife of one husband, it's the same terminology in Timothy and Titus in regards to the elders being a husband of one wife, meaning a one-woman man. This woman is a one-man woman. It took me a little bit to practice that, by the way. <laughs> good reputation of good works, or reputation of good works, raising kids, hospitality, feet washing. Um, Paul Tome has the best illustration of what foot washing today was like then. It's like wiping somebody's nose. Nobody wants to do that. I thought, man, I never thought of it that way. You know, washing feet today isn't as bad as it probably was back then in that culture, but if somebody wants to, you know, wipe my nose when I have a cold, then that's like, okay, we're getting off track. Caring for the afflicted. 
The, the basic thing is they're marked by love. Not love for themselves, but love for others because they see others as the family of God, adopted into the family just like themselves. This qualification, I don't believe, means that the church refuses to help widows that don't meet this. That would seem to be a conflict with the rest of Scripture. On the contrary, the church still has an obligation to support those who are truly widows. However, this is what John Stott says. This scripture does mean that there is an expectation of women in ministry within the local church. Paul goes on and says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger women marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. It's believed that he's referencing what he's already talked about earlier in 1 Timothy about some women who are really causing destruction. He comes back to this to say, look, there's just something about the cultural pressures that were then and are still alive today that keep women from pursuing godliness especially when they're young because they don't want to be alone. And so now the chaos that's in their soul begins to push them like gravity to pursue things that are never going to satisfy. No, we need to command and exhort and encourage these women to stay disciplined in their faith in God and to fight the temptation to find satisfaction in ungodly ways. Paul recognizes the problem of younger women in the church who've lost their husband and they're falling under cultural pressure that they, they are trying to fulfill. Many believe this portion of, sex, or of scripture is um, the basis for the Roman Catholic Church and the Order of the Sisters. This verse may have inspired the movie, The Sound of Music. Story of Maria, who wished to join the Order of Sisters and devote herself to a celibate life of service to others. But Paul probably would have refused to have taken in Maria because she was too young. He understood the pressures that a young woman would have in regards to the culture and family and children. So he says, don't enroll them but encourage them to marry. But Paul never leaves his core principle. He wants Timothy to treat these widows like a sister, like they're his sister, and encourage them to grow and mature in their faith through godly marriage, leading their homes, and pursuing faith before they're put 
on the list. And then Paul comes back to his main point or the key verse. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul concludes the families, again, need to take care of their own grandmothers and mothers. The church has limited funds and needs to be available to provide for true widows. This form of family is attractive. It is countercultural. It's not normal. When the outsider who is lost in chaos looks at the family of God, this is attractive. It's irresistible. Because we want in our nature to belong. How you see people is how you treat people. Leo Tolstoy opens his famous novel, Anna Karenina. Has anybody read that? I've read parts of it. But it's one of the most quoted lines in literature. I remember hearing this line in seminary and hearing about this novel in family counseling. And the opening line is, happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Think about that. Happy families are all alike. There's a common denominator. But unhappy families, they're unhappy in their own unique, destructive ways. There may be some similar things. I mean, I can manipulate my child. I can undermine my wife and her confidence. And I can do it in a unique way that nobody else can. Family relationships are complicated. No one can insult me like my own father or hurt me like my own mother. No one can get under my skin like a sibling. Ask my younger brother or my older brother or watch us play flag football. No one can disappoint me like my immediate family. Several years ago, I was sitting with a student And he was done with his faith. He was wounded by his father. He tried the Christian faith. And he was walking away. And he said, you just don't get it. You just don't understand what it's like. I said, really? Really? Give me a little more credit than that. We come from different families. This is exactly what I said to him. We come from different families. Your father never showed up. He was never around. Missed every birthday, every celebration, and that wounded you. And he kind of showed up, hit and miss every once in a while, and it was token, check the box, and it even made it worse. It grieves you. It infects you. My dad was at everything. Never missed a sporting event. Never missed a birthday. He was everywhere in my life all the time. And he grieved me and hurt me 
beyond imagination. I know what that feels like. There's no such thing as a perfect family where everything is always working together. But there is a common denominator for the people of God that binds us together and brings us restoration, shalom. It is the love of God. This love defined in the gospel of Jesus Christ is razor sharp to the soul. For a lot of us, we get a little bit of that. We get a little bit of the gospel. It's, we kind of treat it like the, the diving board. You know, we believe and we make that jump into the pool of life. But the love that we're talking about isn't just the diving board. It's the pool you're swimming in. It changes everything. It's agape love. It's not a sexual term of love. Agape love is not permissive. Anything that attacks the fundamental truth of this love is not okay. Two Sundays ago, sitting in Kampala Baptist Church, I heard the best message I've ever heard from Pastor Andrew Mwange on love, on agape love. Speaking to his congregation, his culture, I sat there and was like, wow. Such a clear picture of this type of love that is personified in the gospel where Jesus denied himself and laid down his life to restore us back into the family of God. Self-sacrifice, denying yourself, realizing that your sin, your selfishness, Jesus took on the cross, and he didn't grumble or complain. Before then with the religious leaders, you hear some, hey, get your act together. But when he's taken on the sin of the world, he didn't complain. He didn't grumble. He didn't say, you know, I just don't really like the way you dress on Sabbath. You know, the music just wasn't cutting it. I just didn't do anything for me. And, and I don't like this, and I don't like that ministry. And all of a sudden, there's all this grumbling and complaining. You know where I'm going. I'm not even going to give you any more specifics. Self-sacrifice, denying yourself out of love for the family of God. doesn't mean you have to agree about everything. I'm not talking that there can't be disagreements or preferences on music or dress, but those don't become the moral issue that divide. That's what I'm talking about. I have differences with my parents and my brothers. It doesn't divide us because we're family. We're marked by our name and our identity. Matsky. But when Christ comes as the family of God, we are now no longer individuals, different colors of skin or ethnicity or places on the planet. We are, those are secondary to our identity in Jesus Christ as the family of God. 
That is shalom. That is God's mission of restoration and redemption. God, through Jesus, demonstrated this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, 1 John 5. And everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of God. Friends and family, how you see people is how you treat them. If you don't see them as family, if you don't see them as family members and children and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers of God, you won't treat them that way. But the truth is, is how you see people is how you will treat people. And how you treat people is a reflection of your love for God and your love for God's family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we be, may we behave, may we interact by the power of your Holy Spirit as family members you being our heavenly father and your will through your word giving us direction on how we can walk in a manner worthy of your love for us. May this be what marks us here at Sun River Church. May it be what marks every single church going down the, the Coloma Road as people are listening to sermons from your word. Lord, may your spirit bind the church together in a way that magnifies love in, a com- in this community and draws people to you. And let it start in here with us, Lord. If there is conflict, if a brother or a sister in this room as children of God are frustrated or upset, may there be short accounts, may there be forgiveness, may there be restoration, and we need your spirit, Lord, to do what we can't do on our own. These are the things we ask and we pray in your name.